Season 2, a serial podcast about a man they would call Joe Millionaire, a rapist. A story of absolute perversion kneeling at the altar of the god oil, bathed in power, drugs, and slathered in sex. Thank you for listening to True Crime 49. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the bottom of the clouds. The cheap paper placemat at the diner shows the printed themes of Glacier standing strong face above waters flat and tranquil. A strong healthy salmon blasts way up into the rapids. A line of people going up over the pass and into the gold fields in Canada. There's a picture of an old miner on bended knee next to the creek, looking down at the gold nuggets assuredly rising from the silt in his gold pan. And a world-class moose standing like a king, looking down on it all in the background. And in the sun-setting valley amongst beautiful massive peaks. An untouched glass of tap water has left a puffy ring and has smeared away the paper in the old miner's chest and part of his arm. Welcome to True Crime 49. The miner with the long beard on the placemat looks to be about 68 years old. The year he would have been born was smack dab in the middle of the Klondike gold rush up into Canada. The goat trails were at a stop and go, waiting your turn between the guard ropes up on the mountain, many shaking their heads and tugging at their luggage, and the pitiful returning to Seattle. White Earp left his pistol in a tavern in Skagway, and had headed hurriedly to Nome on advice from a friend. The next morning, the headlines read, Gold in Alaska. Valdez Glacier, best trail, and the people clamored off of the ships in Valdez, only half the distance that White Earp would travel all the way to Nome. And the people rented rooms and assembled gear, and they would have toasts in the taverns, and in the morning begin the ascent up into snow blindness. All of a terrible lie. So many died in the snow trails. Sweating at midday, the strong young man, waving off his father's advice about the pace and his sweat dripping down his back and around his chest and in his socks, most completely. Raspy, lukewarm breath around midnight. His father, a hardy man, is loading his 28-year-old son into the sled heading back towards the glowing tavern light so many long miles away, the sun never stirring under the blankets on the sled. Eventually, when the rugged old man finally lumbered into town, he was ghastly and barely still moving, dragging the sled. He spoke of the demon, the creature the townsfolk would see often, grinning or snarling at you from between bar stools or in the mirror. But it would always be gone when you went to go look. They said it was awkward and frail, but its eyes you could not stare into, 
as it would build fear as sure as the fountain. The man said all through the night he would look back and the demon would be sitting on the sled, whispering down into his son's lips, and he had raged at it and hollered in the night chasing him away nearly every time he looked back, the demon was there. And when they peeled back the blankets from the cold night, the sun was frozen solid, his eyes were of the saddest of stone, and his expression was of confusion and frost blotching. Somewhere far away the miner on the placemat is birthed and cries out clammy and slick, steaming in the cold world. Before the arrival of the first Europeans, Alaska was occupied by many indigenous nations for thousands of years. In April 1899, Captain Abercrombie reached Valdez and found malnourished miners, with 70% showing signs of mental derangement. The widely accepted glacial demon had tormented and ended the lives of many. However, lives were mainly lost to the cold, scurvy, or some by accidents, like the avalanche that took an estimated 65 lives. A 100,000 people would attempt to find gold in the Klondike, with 60% failing in one way or another. And now it is 1966. The Beatles get stranded at the airport in Anchorage when they had to stop to get fuel for the long stretch to Japan. And the girls had tried everything to get their attention from down in the parking lot. The doll-eyed Englishman huffs air looking down from the window, stranded these few more hours yet to endure. And somewhere, a scurvy 21-year-old and his two buddies are taking turns on a 15-year-old girl that they'd laughed and pretended with. Each time she swilled at the hard liquor bottle that they were handing her. She's passed out completely and is ragged. Laying in the dark on his jail cell bunk in Juneau, the scurvy 21-year-old is up on four years statutory rape with alcohol on that one girl. Hands behind his head, his eyes are pointed out to the world inside his eyes are the fantasy. He's playing them over and over. Any scenario that gives him time uninterrupted, it goes to the top of the stack, becoming part of the playbook, pulled up and out at the perfectly arranged moment when you only have two choices, keep bobbing your head yes, or protest no, and wake up much later, remembering only the first parts. After all the trial and error, there is the golden ones, the ones that make his heartbeat pulse in his chest, the one where the parents dropped him off at you, and everyone knows, but no one tells. Joseph Franz Bohm was born in January 1944 in Munich, Germany, to Cecilia Bohm. Joe Bohm claims his father died in the war. His mother remarried, and they all moved to Alaska in 1956. At 12, Joe soon had three new siblings in the last frontier. Ten years later, in his 20s, Joe and two other men were sentenced for the rape of 15-year-old Kathy Pringle. Court documents show Bohm had sexually assaulted another underage girl prior to young Kathy. 
1989 in Valdez, heavy laden with oil, on this end of the pipeline, pumping that precious crude. It runs from the top of the world all the way down to the water's edge in Valdez. The towns had been drying up before 800 miles of four-foot-wide pipe. 800 miles of surveyors and their measuring rods in their hand. The equipment operator squirting lube into the zerks and the rostabouts check would make some married women blush with her eyelashes at the numbers. And the insulators and the inspectors. 800 miles of Friday nights at the bars. The girls flock like birds, seed gathering on the floor even. It had happened so fast, the little nut and bolt company was sucking off life of a little blood vessel in the industries of pre-oil boom Alaska, when it came across an artery. The pipeline was 800 miles that reshaped the culture of the state indefinitely. The little nut and bolt company shot out of it like a meteor, huge pumping money and every kind of part and tool specialized in the oil industry as they were building the last foot of the pipe. And now in a vacuum, many jobs dissolved when the pipeline was laid and the air made all types of noises, howling, whispering, shushing you, and then a screech from up in the darkness of the pipe being filled with oil for the first time. The demon is standing on the rocks outside of Valdez. Out on the water, the steel hull, megalith, is parting both the waves and the dark night, heading out to sea. The demon is creeping out from behind the door in the stateroom of the captain on the ship. The captain is sleeping and snoring, and a bottle of vodka with the cap dried on the shelf. The demon slips his hand out from behind the door, with fingers reaching toward the bed and snatches the string on the lamp. Just barely moments before the reef, under the water, ravaged its bent fist across and through the ribs of Jesus. And it gushed out, and people alternately began cursing and praying, and then weeping. In 1989, the Exxon Valdez poured over 10 million gallons of oil in Prince William Sound, Alaska, destroying the active wildlife, remote islands, and wounding the fishing industry. While state and federal agencies descended, cleanup efforts soon began, and over 11,000 people were involved. $3.8 billion would be spent on the accident, with a mobile command center set in Valdez, and companies like Alaska Industrial Hardware, who employed Joe Bohm, providing goods, and Vico, providing workers. The owners of these companies have become ridiculously rich, while many of the workers have long-term health effects from the harsh cleaning chemicals and the toxic crude itself. Alaska is a word from an island peoples which means the great endless land, which the ocean breaks upon from every direction. The crude is on the stones. Gasping at the water's edge is a black shiny mound. It is gasping, and it's one eye can see only a stinging blur, half covered in the black sludge. It is gasping, and it is frantic, and its tears now a rainbow skim down into the horrible sea. 
The tide is creeping up almost to the nostrils of her pup, blinded, slick, and tucked part under her. The nape of his neck and his tiny shoulders, the hair all disturbed. Using the splash of the infrequent waves to tug him by feel, keeping him exhausted just before the waves. When the steam blasted the stones around her, and she is caught up in a scalding fume, and is caught up in hurried arms, her one half-eye scavenging the stinging blur for her precious treasure. She is spasming ever so slightly in the young woman's arms, running to the table over slippery stones. He is left half-cooked and bobbing in the horrible steam and the foam. They slid her onto the table, and the volunteer was determined. During 2006, Anchorage Police Department employed 350 officers under Chief Walt Monaghan. In previous episodes, we told of Ducasi, who stole 70000 in cash and cocaine, and Rains and Shine with their $10 million busted drug ring. There were over 1,000 arrests that year for possession of drugs and 275 arrests for sale and manufacturing. He steps out of the ride and he squints up at the bright lights and the bright paint. Lighting up the old Seward Highway parking lot like a giant flashy truck stop or a trucker's casino. The shit at the corners of his eyes kissed and pulled back slowly as he was blinking up at them. His keys jingled as he came up the walkway. Earlier than usual, he basically rolled right out of bed. The employees that were there stayed busy and stayed low on the horizon. He looked like he meant business. He looked disheveled, barely put together from some kind of an all-nighter. Putting their tills in order as the sky outside was changing in the low angle of the sun. He was coming down and out from upstairs, walking a stern huff, but satisfied. The one guy was holding the door from as he was walking out. A double wad of cash and a soft, heavy curve in his hand, opening it a bit. It starts to fan into three big chunks with beautiful feathers spanning in between them. Then he crams the peacock in his gaping coat pocket. And as his ride is pulling out onto the old Seward Highway, the doorman of this little nut and bolt shop still has his keys in the shiny glass door. He turns the key and gives it a sharp tuck. The two guys look at each other and shrug their shoulders and roll their eyes. Thanks for staying late though. At least this time he was only here for 15 minutes. They laugh and say goodnight to each other and head home for the evening. The picture of an old sourdough Alaskan down on bended knee next to the sheet. He looks to be about 59 years old. His skin is drab and he looks much like a chicken thawed and having come down from the kitchen counter on his own. Looking down at the gold nuggets, surely rising from the silt in his gold pan. He is part wearing only a shiny blue silk robe with two dragons embroidered on it. The phone is sitting on the bamboo end table next to the crack pipe in the cast of the lamp on the table. This season will cover the murders of two women, sex trafficking of at least 14 girls as young as 11, political corruption, crack addiction, 
unsolved murders all linked to one man, Joe Millionaire. Much like Tom Cody seemed like an ordinary man, a pillar of Alaska's community, so seemed Joe Bohm, who grew the iconic Alaska industrial hardware. Only his inner circle knew the depravity and perversion of Joe Millionaire. It's been a busy week, and the girls in the call center perk up this time when the girl on the other end is whispering and gasping into the phone that there's someone in the house and he's trying to hurt her. 300 Ocean View Drive. That's a half a million dollar home. They race down and find a guy hiding in the dark in the downstairs bathroom clutching a screwdriver. And they find the 59-year-old in his own house, perplexed as they are rifling through his piles of homemade pornography. Gasping and clopping lips at breath as they are piling up crack and mounds on the table. Trying to comprehend how he is now forever interrupted, he begins to become enraged. And then, and, 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 and that the five people in the house must get out. Otherwise they will steal all my stuff, he demanded, slurring spittle of the cops. After the cold ride in the back of the cop car, and sitting in the dank hum of the fluorescent holding room for questioning, he has to take a leak. Escorted and standing in the stall, the man with the badge looks at the old chicken bird man as he's pissing. The stream is weak. A few spurts, really. And he clenches up his butt cheeks as he's shaking for dribbles. The man with the bad saw only one of the photos of him and a little girl. The flash had caught shiny and freckled liver spots on the crown of his skull in the still photo. His eyes were wild and in another place. The scurvy 59-year-old stiffens his back and clears his throat in this submarine-style bathroom deep in the cop shop's walls. Each sound is so close to you and his mouth clops from the all-nighter, and the shit in his eyes kissed as the cop watches the chicken man, sneers his lips a little like Elvis. And he says, you know those torsos you've been finding out in the salt marsh? He lets it sink in a minute for the man with the badge. And he's rolling it in his hands like a lollipop at the fairgrounds. Maybe I could tell you something about those. Find us online at TC49 Podcast. See show notes for more information.